Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivudwani. Our focus on the renaissance in research into psychedelics continues today, but instead of looking at their potential therapeutic applications, we're going to hear about using them as a tool for learning how the brain works. Dr. Michael Silver is a professor in the School of Optometry and the Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute at University of California, Berkeley, and is the director of the UC Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics. Research in the Silver Laboratory focuses on the brain mechanisms of visual perception, attention, and learning. Although he's been conducting pharmacological studies in humans for nearly 20 years, the initial studies as part of the center will be the first in his lab to involve psychedelic compounds. So Dr. Silver, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. So we always like to ask our guests what first got them interested in a career in science or in your case, neuroscience specifically, and then visual perception as well. It dates back to my, my early youth. I was always fascinated by visual illusions. And my initial exposure to them, they were just kind of fun and interesting. But you know, eventually I kind of grew to understand that there's a mismatch between what's out there in the world and our experience of what's out there in the world. And why is that? Why why aren't we just able to sort of just record the world as it is? And you know, through that kind of came to appreciate perception's not a recording in the way that cameras record the world. It's an it's an active construction. Our brain builds, generates our perception, and it's informed by sensory information. But fundamentally, it's it's something that is created by the brain. And somewhere along the line, I learned that people can actually get paid to study these kinds of things, and they, I was completely hooked. The idea that the brain is actively constructing perception. How in the heck does that happen? That's fascinated me from when I was a child and is the, the main kind of focus of my research group today. That's fascinating. And I'm curious too. So actually, when I was a freshman in college, I was going to be doing a freshman seminar on visual perception with escaping his name, the Nobel laureates who were studying visual perception in cats. I think that's how they elucidated. Probably David Hubel or Torsten Wiesel. Hubel, yeah. Unfortunately, I did not do that seminar. I didn't get lotteried in, but it's a fascinating area. And I'm sure, you know, since you mentioned visual perception, one of the things we're hearing about on all these psychedelic interviews we're doing is the effects that psychedelics can have on your visual perception among, you know, your, your hearing, et cetera. Is that partly what got you interested in psychedelics? Or can you talk us through about why, an, you know, a ophthalmology optometry professor is now doing psychedelic research? Yeah, absolutely. The visual effects are, I think, so interesting. Obviously, they shine light on the process by which the brain generates perception. As a scientist, doing pharmacology research in general is really powerful because, you know, if you have a complex system that you are learning the basic properties, you know, the, a good way to study that system is to perturb it in a well-defined way and see how the system responds. And so pharmacology is useful for studying cells and synapses and circuits in the brain, but also I think really, you know, even trickier and, and less well-understood concepts like consciousness and perception. And so Having a, a molecule, which we know quite a bit about how it interacts biochemically and pharmacologically with receptors in the brain and so forth, looking at how that then perturbs or you know alters visual perception gives us insights into those basic mechanisms by which visual perception operates normally, so to speak, without a drug. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that aligns with some of the things we've heard from another neuroscientist turned psychedelic researcher, Dr. Fred Barrett at, at Hopkins, who I think 
what got him interested in neuroscience was more the music aspects of neuroscience. And for you, it's interesting. It's the visual aspects. So it's kind of interesting to see how people with very different backgrounds kind of converge on this field. So before we go into pharmacology and, and the psychedelic research your team is doing, can you talk to us a bit about some of the methods you've used to study the visual system and just any of the kind of findings that you and your lab have produced that you're most proud of that our audience may be interested in knowing? Yeah, I'd be happy to. One huge advantage of for, for neuroscientists working in the visual system is we understand it very well compared to many other systems in the brain. We know about the different cell types. We know about the circuits. We have really powerful methods for identifying, isolating particular aspects of visual perception. We have the ability to do human neuroimaging and objectively define many areas in the visual cortex, which are just still unclear how, how they're defined in some of these higher order areas. And so we can ask you know, pretty sophisticated questions and, and develop detailed hypotheses based on this huge knowledge base that we have about visual perception and how it is instantiated in the brain. So a lot of the studies in our lab are sort of predicated on that. And so we've done pharmacology research typically with pharmaceuticals that are already used as medicines. So one that we've studied a lot is Aricept, which is the most common treatment for Alzheimer's disease, medication-based treatment. We're not studying Alzheimer's disease per se. We're not studying patients with Alzheimer's disease, but we're using this drug to selectively enhance activity in a particular neurotransmitter pathway, the acetylcholine pathway in the brain. And this gives us insights into the basic biology of acetylcholine, but also Aricept is effective in part because it's improving cognition in patients with Alzheimer's disease. And so we can get insights into the mechanisms by which learning can take place in the brain too. And we found that this drug actually significantly enhances a form of learning called visual perceptual learning in so-called neurotypical subjects. So not people with a, a diagnosis, but just healthy volunteers undergo a, a visual perceptual learning task, which means they're practicing a visual task and they get better at it over time. There are some changes in the brain that enables them to improve their performance. And it seems as though this neurotransmitter acetylcholine is involved in that because if you enhance the activity of acetylcholine during the learning process, people learn more and faster. That's fascinating. I know a lot of our audience would be interested in because many, including myself, are interested in going into neurology, psychiatry, and ophthalmology in this case too. So let's go into the pharmacology and psychedelics. So, you know, what, what type of psychedelics is your lab studying? And, you know, maybe just give our audience a bit of a high level overview. It's great to have a neuroscientist on the podcast because we focus very much on therapy in this podcast so far, but I'd love to get deep as, as deep as you can or want to on maybe the neuro, the scientific effects of psychedelics, what's actually happening on the neuronal level. Yeah, so we're planning two different kinds of studies. One is a study of the psychedelic experience itself. So here we're giving people relatively low doses of psilocybin, low enough that they are able to participate in boring visual perception tasks and go into a brain scanner and have the, their brain activity recorded. And here, this is very much informed by our, our extensive knowledge base of the visual system of, of, you know, based on many decades of research. And so we have models for being able to quantify how the visual system represents different kinds of visual features in the environment. And so here we're using a low enough dose that People are, you know, perception is not going to be radically changed, we don't think, but it will be, you know, a, a sort of reduced version of the full-blown psychedelic experience in terms of the perceptual effects. And so we'll fully characterize the way in which all kinds of visual features are represented in different parts of the brain. And then we're also testing aspects of this model in which perception is, is conceived of as this active constructive process. So our perception at any given moment is a combination of information from the sensory organs, the retina and our eyes, 
but it also is informed by all of the previous experience we've had that helps the brain to kind of interpret and shape this incoming sensory data. And it, it's computationally in the brain very helpful to take advantage of the, the previous experience we've had to be able to construct our, our subjective experience of the world. And so with modern brain imaging techniques, we can separately measure these signals from the outside world coming through the sensory pathways and these internally generated signals that are based on our previous experience, sometimes called priors, and then see how they interact at a, a detailed level in different cortical areas to really make a circuit diagram of how information flows both from the outside and from the inside in the brain, how they interact. And then the psychedelic question is, how does psilocybin influence this? And, and there's a specific theory that's actually connected to the psychedelic assisted therapy for mental health disorders that suggests that some of these internal signals are de-emphasized or have less influence in the brain. And the visual system is a great testbed for this because we have these ways of, of experimentally isolating these different inputs into the circuits. Yeah, that actually, I listened to a podcast recently with Sam Harris, who I'm sure you know or follow, a neuroscientist. And he, I think, he was talking to a, a University of Oxford professor, Ch Ch Chandaria, I believe. I don't know if you heard this podcast. I'll, I'll send you a link and maybe we'll drop it in the show notes. It's very interesting talking about, you know, how the brain actually, you know, is like a Bayesian operator and has all these priors that you're describing and then is able to construct a lot of what we perceive in the world. Yeah, well, I, I may be able to supplement a bit there. I mean, there, there's a, a theory that uh, was introduced by Robin Carhart Harris and Carl Friston that has to do with these priors, these internally generated signals in the context of psychedelic assisted therapy. And, and the idea is that some of these internally generated signals can, can be maladaptive in mental health disorders. And so one example of an internally generated prior, it could be a depressed person comes to really see themselves as their core identity is the depressed person who's unable to achieve what they want to in the world and has low self-worth and is, you know, difficulty interacting with others. And then the, it becomes this loop where the that worsens the, the symptoms of the depression. And so Robin and Carl's ideas, psychedelics is a therapy, the psychedelics help to reduce the influence of these priors. And then in the context of the right therapeutic environment, more healthy adaptive priors can be constructed. And that might be partly why they are effective. Psychedelics and, and therapy together are effective for these mental health disorders that involve these sort of ruminative loops. So those are hard to study in the brain. We have we don't have a great idea about the neural basis of self-conception and things like that, but we, we do envision. And so we can take these core elements of this theory and then apply them in a rigorous way to our studies in, in healthy human subjects in visual processing. Thank you for that. It's very interesting. And, and, and yeah, we've definitely heard about some of that research and you know maybe the quieting of the default mode network being a, a way that people are then able to form new paths. And your colleague who we'll talk about, Michael Pollan at Berkeley, was the one who I think popularized this idea that you know, I think the analogy was to skiing, where, you know, you have these priors, which are moguls, essentially, when, you know, for those who know how to ski, there are these tracks in the snow that you kind of have to go down these patterns of thought that you go down. But then psychedelics can maybe kind of shake up that snow and give you fresh powder and you can form new tracks. Is that sort of a good good analogy? Very much so, yes. Cactuses and other things that are culturally dependent. Do you have any thoughts on like maybe both of these types of paths? Like why, why are why do many people across cultures report seeing some of the same sort of fractals or other patterns? And then why is there like a, maybe a cultural context? Well, one of the most fascinating aspects of psychedelics, I think, is that the, the biochemical effects of the drug do not account for, cannot really account for all of the different kinds of subjective effects that people have. So there's a, a necessary interaction between the drug itself as a physical molecule, the set and the setting. So the set being the internal 
mindset of the person who's taking the psychedelic. Why are they taking the psychedelic, their intention, what they're hoping to get out of it. And then the setting is more the external factors, the people who are around the context, it's the physical environment. And these have really powerful effects on the psychedelic experience. And so for you know pharmacologists, that's daunting because it's very difficult to experimentally control some of these variables, but it's also extremely interesting. And I think most pharmacology studies and, and honestly, most prescribing of medications, even you know medications for mental health, there's not that much attention paid to factors like set and setting. You, you get your prescription from your doctor, you go to the drugstore, get it dispensed and you take the drug. And But for psychedelics, it's clear that set and setting have huge effects. So, and so, you know, some of these kind of low level kaleidoscopic effects, maybe they are effectively modeled by what we know about visual cortical circuits and the connections of neurons and so forth. But some of these that are more culturally, now obviously some people will, will interpret these culturally specific phenomena as connections with the spirit world and, you know, communing with other beings and so forth, staying within the, the sort of materialistic neuroscientific view, one can say that the context in which the drug is taken, including the expectations that people have, are going to have powerful effects on what they experience. And so some of these visual effects that are culturally specific could well be because people are aware of those those cultural histories and, and they're kind of bringing that to the experience. And so that's not going to be so easily modeled by populations of neurons connecting with each other in the brain, it's, it's going to be a much more a higher level psychological kind of phenomenon. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thanks. Thanks for explaining that. So, so I mentioned Michael Pollan, I mentioned Berkeley a little, let's go into, so for, for our audience who doesn't know, Michael Pollan's a professor at Berkeley, who I think helped popularize a lot of psychedelic research by writing this excellent book, How to, How to Change Your Mind, as well as a follow-up book. I think This Is Your Mind on Plants, I believe is the second one. And then also having a Netflix doc, Netflix docu-series about psychedelics. So it makes sense that Berkeley and, and you are kind of leading the charge in terms of educating the masses or, or even clinicians about psychedelics. Do you want to tell us a bit more about the Center for the Science of Psychedelics, how it formed, who's in it, and, and what your plans are? Yes, I'd be delighted to. So he was a professor of, at journalism at Berkeley for years before the founding of the center, but he was a founding member together with Decker Keltner, who's a professor of psychology at Berkeley. And we assembled a group of six people, six faculty members, and they span education, molecular and cell biology, psychology, neuroscience, journalism. So that's one really distinctive aspect of our center is just the, the breadth of the disciplines that are incorporated and, and that interact with each other. So the other members are Tina Trujillo in the School of Education, Andrea Gomez in molecular and cell biology, David Presti in molecular and cell biology. Awesome. That's, that, I mean, I like I love the multidisciplinary approach because obviously these these compounds span a lot of disciplines. So, what are some of the goals you have as a center, and you know maybe some of the accomplishments you can talk about so far? So our identity is very linked with the fact that we are at a public university and that we do our work for the benefit of society. And so, open science is a core value of ours. The commitment to sharing the results of our work broadly and accessibly in an accessible manner to everyone in society. We bring those values as part of us being professors at a major public university. And so certainly for our public education and journalism efforts, that's at the core of it. And so we've got a website, psychedelics.berkeley.edu, that has a lot of information about many different aspects of psychedelics for people with all kinds of educational backgrounds. We also are about to release a MOOC, a massive open online course called Psychedelics in the Mind which is primarily David Presti, but in conversation with eight or nine other experts from a, a wide variety of kind of backgrounds, disciplines, and identities. 
and this is, you know, we're awash in information in the modern age, but, you know, we're increasingly understanding like not all information is created equal and that there's a lot of misinformation, disinformation. I think that's especially true in psychedelics where people have such strong views. There's many places you can go that seem like they're educational sites about psychedelics and there's maybe information there, but it's strong advocacy and, and very biased for a particular kind of outcome. And so we really perceived a need to have credible information that is not coming from an advocacy perspective. And so the fact that Michael Pollan is a, a journalist and that journalists are creating our content is really important. They're bringing the journalistic practices and ethics to our public education. We deliberately as a center don't take positions on you know, questions like decriminalization of drugs, for example, because that would undermine our journalistic credibility to be able to report on the field of psychedelics. And so there's no such thing as an unbiased source of information, but we we really are committed to trying to reduce bias as much as possible and, and simply present the facts as they're known and also present the unknowns in, in an honest way to the public. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing the the journalistic side. I, I, I absolutely agree with. We've had several journalists on the podcast, and that's something we respect is taking this unbiased view because, you know, a lot of people who go into the space feel like oftentimes they become very, for good reason, they become very pro-decriminalization, but it also compromises their credibility, as you mentioned. You know, obviously the most controversial figure in the space, I think, is Timothy Leary, who probably helped help set back psychedelic research qu- quite a bit out of maybe too much enthusiasm for it. So the hope is that that doesn't happen again here. Right. We also need to be honest about the real risks associated with psychedelics. Yeah. You know, and I would say that that's important regardless of what one's view is about how much, how many legal, what, what kinds of legal restrictions there should be or shouldn't be, that these drugs are powerful. They ha- seem like they have tremendous potential for healing, and then they also have real risks. And all of those need to be honestly discussed in, in an open way. Have there been, I mean, since, since we're talking about that, I know one of the contraindications we've heard of from study designs is anyone with a history, family history, or personal history of psychoses in terms of taking part in these studies, because it could potentially exacerbate that. It's unclear, but, but I know Hopkins has, has made sure not to have people with that, that family history. I'm just curious too, like, has there any, have there been any papers around people with visual issues, you know, and, and taking psychedelics or any particular thoughts we have on maybe psychedelics for, you know, for, for those conditions, any visual conditions? There is a phenomenon called HPPD, hallucination persistent perceptual disorder. And it's something that occurs in some cases years after a psychedelic experience. And it can take different forms, but in some cases quite disabling. So the symptoms of this disorder really interfere with people's ability to see and to just have normal visual perception of the world. We know very little about its prevalence and it's certainly in terms of what the neural mechanisms are, treatments, that's all, you know, in general, psychedelic research has has really progressed very little over the last several decades, in large part because of the legal restrictions. And so there's so much basic fundamental information that we simply don't know. And that's part of the excitement about the reemergence of this research now is being able to bring modern methods to scientific methods to study this. But it also just means there's these enormous gaps about risk factors such as psychosis, for example. I mean, I, I think it's I, I, certainly understandable that the people doing clinical trials are going to have exclusion criteria that don't, in, in, in cases that of patients that might be at risk for being harmed by the psychedelic, but it also means that, you know, we, we're, we have very little information about exactly what those risk factors are. And, and, and I think that's, that's correct for now. The clinical trials should focus on a population that is, you know, 
easy easy to understand and over time generalize it to other other kinds of more heterogeneous populations but it just means you know it's just a reflection of the fact that we we really know so little about the effects of psychedelics on the mind and the brain including those that could are potentially harmful i've heard of hppd and hopefully there'll be more study on that because that's obviously a, a very negative outcome that's been reported in literature and and from people about what could happen if they take psychedelics I wanted to dive deeper on the on the MOOC you mentioned. So, can you give our audience, many of whom may be interested in taking it, an idea of like what what's the scope of it, the platform it's available on, and you know what the target audience is essentially? Yeah, the scope is very broad. So, there's a lot of chemistry, neuroscience, pharmacology, you know, kind of so-called hard science, but there's also many cultural perspectives. So, a real emphasis on indigenous traditions. So, obviously, indigenous groups in, in some cases have been using what you know, Western society calls psychedelics as, as plant medicines in ceremonial contexts for a very long time. And I think have learned an incredible amount about the properties of different kinds of plant medicines. And also I would argue have learned a lot about how to integrate psychedelics and society in a healthy way, which is something that is, we're going to need to contend with in, in modern Western society. And as, as psychedelics become more prevalent and possibly approved as medicines, you know, as Michael Pollan likes to say, like we we've we know how to do the war on drugs, so to speak, but we really don't know what to do after that and, and what it looks like. And so there's there's many cultural historical perspectives as well. And so David Presti is the main instructor, who's a, a legendary teacher at the UC Berkeley campus in, in molecular and cell biology. But he interviews eight or nine different experts from a variety of, of different backgrounds. And so that's the content of the course. It will be released on the edX platform. There'll be a free version and then there'll be a certificate version where people can get additional materials and evaluation. And if they, you know, kind of make it through the course, then they, they get a certificate of completion afterwards. That will be a paid track. And in terms of the target audience, we really wanted to make very little assumptions about what people's educational backgrounds were. We feel like there's many, many people who are curious about psychedelics who don't necessarily have college degrees in sciences or other fields. And so it's we really tried to make this accessible to people of all different educational backgrounds, but also still compelling and interesting for people who do have significant expertise in, in some aspect of psychedelics. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm excited to check it out myself when it's released and we'll we'll share it with our audience too. We, we've collaborated with edX and 2U in the past and mentioned before the podcast started, we've had both of their leaders, including Anand Argawal on the podcast. So we're a huge fan of massive open online education as well. It's kind of in our DNA at Osmosis. Yeah, clearly. So in addition to this, this MOOC, I, when I was researching the Psychedelic Center, I know there's also a certificate program in psychedelic facilitation. Can you tell us a bit about that or any other educational programs that maybe our audience would be interested in? So the certificate program in psychedelic facilitation is run by Tina Trujillo, who's a professor of education here. And her scholarly background is includes evaluation and design of educational programs. So she's uniquely suited to create a new program in this field. And the, the basic idea is that you know, the importance of set and setting for the psychedelic experience and the fact that there there are risks emphasizes the value of having a psychedelic experience together with a trained psychedelic facilitator or guide. And certainly this is a huge part of the model of psychedelic assisted therapy, that the, all of them involve significant therapeutic components, not just the drug itself. So both in terms of the path towards FDA approval of medicines and then decriminalization and legalization efforts that maybe are, are bringing psychedelic experiences to a broader group of people, it's anticipated that we will really need psychedelic facilitators and we need standards about what kind of 
training education should psychedelic facilitators have? And at the moment, there's no accreditation board. There's no, unlike if you were to get a, you know, a degree in psychology at a university there, there's standards in place about what a psychology curriculum looks like. There's external third-party review and so forth. There's nothing like that in the field right now. And so we're hoping that our program helps to play a leadership role in establishing these standards. And part of Tina's background as a researcher means she's doing evaluation research of our program year by year, learning about those aspects that are effective, that are less effective. And then as part of our public university identity, communicating those results with everyone. And she's also convening the leaders of different psychedelic facilitator training programs to have conversations about what standards look like in the field. So this, at the moment, this is really a very unregulated area, but understood to be very important in the future. And so it's, it's really essential that a lot of thought goes into what those what those programs should look like. What are the essential components? What are the most effective aspects of each program? That's fascinating. I'll, I'll definitely be double clicking on that and recommend our audience check it out if they're interested in maybe pursuing a certificate and getting more more in-depth training on, on, on in the psychedelic space. So maybe the MOOC can be the entry point and then going into the, the certificate could be a, a later stage because I know it's a lot more involved based on the description. Yeah, it's professional preparation. And I, and I should say that our main focus early is to accept people into program who are pretty advanced in their respective fields. And so the, the professional backgrounds are actually very diverse. There's in our first cohort, we had psychiatrists, nurses, social workers, but also chaplains and ministers. So people with religious and spiritual care backgrounds. And, you know, it may well be that in the future, psychedelic chaplaincy is, is something that is a way that a chaplain provides religious and spiritual care to their communities. So it's definitely not just training people to be therapists in future clinical trials, although it's helpful for that also. And some of, some of our graduates will do that. And so it's, it's a very diverse group, but also it's we've started out by emphasizing people who are established in their field so they can take the learnings from this and then disseminate them in their communities in a more effective way than than someone who's you know a brand new person in, in their field that's that's great and you know we had bill and brian richards on the podcast yesterday and bill bill richards specifically mentioned chaplains as well as a as a potentially great audience because they're you know obviously involved in in end of life care in hospitals health uh, and health systems and that was one that that's one of the main applications it seems that that could yield immediate value for psychedelic therapy. Agreed. So we have a newsletter called The Microdose, also free for everyone. It comes out twice a week. One of the issues each week is news updates from the world of psychedelics, which is moving at a dizzying pace. And then the other is an interview with thought leaders in the field. We also have a journalism fellowship program, and this is funded by Tim Ferriss. So here journalists have an idea for doing an investigative piece about some aspect of psychedelics. And if they're selected to be a fellow, then they get the resources to, to do that investigative journalism work, which is harder and harder to do for journalists these days is, you know, a real deep dive into a topic. And then they publish the results wherever they're able to. And so our first cohort of fellows, their, their stories are starting to come out. So they've got articles in National Geographic and Rolling Stone and New Yorker. A couple of them have signed book contracts. And so kind of like how Michael Pollan helped to establish a, a journalistic beat in sort of food and related areas, we're hoping to kind of replicate some of that and then kind of establish a more journalistic beat in psychedelics, broadly defined. Wow, that's awesome. We've had a, a fellow journalist, Scott Carney, who wrote the book The Wedge, in which he talks about, you know, doing MDMA therapy with his his wife. So I'm sure, you know, someone like him would be, I mean, he's obviously published a couple of books, so maybe a little later stage in his career. But yeah, I think journalism journalists play an incredible role and incredibly important role in educating the public about about this field. Another, you know, you mentioned, you know, 
psychedelics are progressing at a dizzying pace. One thing I've enjoyed asking guests on the podcast about, especially recently, is another field that's progressing at a dizzying pace is AI. And a, a friend of mine, Professor Gashberg Vegas, is actually at UC Berkeley. I don't know if you've overlapped with him at all, but he's an, he's an AI researcher at Berkeley. I'm just curious, do you have any thoughts on AI as it may apply to either the research you're doing or, or psychedelic space in general? I, I, my views would be just sort of like, you know, kind of casual observer of AI from a distance. I, I don't work in AI myself and I have a, you know, kind of a, a layman's knowledge of it. But I guess I can answer from, from a, a maybe more narrow research perspective. People like Anil Seth have used AI to try to simulate aspects of the psychedelic experience. And so kind of creating neural networks to replicate some of what's known about brain processing and then showing people altered images and having them kind of evaluate them in the way that they evaluate the, the, the same sort of subjective rating scales that are used to evaluate and describe the psychedelic experience. And I think that has a lot of potential for giving us insights or at the very least kind of helping us to design experiments to understand representations at different levels of visual processing in the brain. So that's not AI, that, that's AI used in a, a very kind of targeted specific way for kind of enabling scientific research. But your question is probably broader, but the reality is that I, I don't think I've, I've really thought about it deeply enough to, to say something helpful there. No, don't worry. I'm just kind of curious how these two may or may not intersect and have been ideating on, on ideas and plus asking other psychedelic researchers a bit about this, as well as AI people we've had on the podcast. I want to be respectful of your time. So I only have two other questions. The first is, you know, we always like to ask our guests, what advice would they give to our audience about meeting their careers in science, healthcare, psychedelics potentially? Yeah. So, I, I mean, my answer comes from the perspective of a basic researcher. So I'm not a clinician, I'm not a healthcare professional, but I'm adjacent in terms of, you know, doing work that relates to mental health and mental health disorders and, and how they how they play out in the brain. So I think my advice to students or maybe early career health professionals is to, you know, as much as possible, just question the basic implicit assumptions in your training and in, in the way that healthcare is conceived of. And I think particularly in mental health, I'm not at all sure that our current conceptual frameworks and, and taxonomies of mental health disorders is the right way to think about it. Part of the reason I believe that is the the, the DSM, the, the manual that's used to, to diagnose disorders. I mean, the, the value of having that manual is, is abundantly clear, but the fact that it, it changes from edition to edition indicates that there's it's a work in progress. And the fact that there's so many comorbidities, that people who suffer from one psychiatric disorder are so much more likely to suffer from another, maybe the way that we are categorizing disorders is just fundamentally off base and, and, and needs to be revised. And so it's always going to be the the younger people in the generation, the young generation of of in any field who are going to, you know, ask the hard questions that that help to kind of reconceptualize the frameworks in, in a meaningful way. And then also, you know, it's clear that our, our Western mental health frameworks really emphasize the individual. Mental health disorders are a problem with the individual and they need to be addressed through therapy of the individual or through medication of the individual. And the contributions of social interactions and in society to our mental health crisis are, it's, it's appreciated that those are contributions, but I think in the, the actual day-to-day -day practice of, of mental health care, they are downweighted a lot. And I would say to, to, to young people in the field, it's important to question those assumptions as well, that you know, the, the, the idea that we that mental health care is, is fundamentally an issue about abnormalities in, in the brain or the mind of, of an individual and need to be dealt with at that level, that needs to be examined and I think you know, probably reconceptualized as well, ultimately. 
I think that's wonderful advice to to you know question your priors, whether it's for your own mental health well-being, but also just for the sake of the scientific field. I'm glad you honed in on those two areas because a great book recommendation that I would like to give our audience that maybe you've read this book is Crazy Like Us by Ethan Waters, a journalist who I think is was or is married to Rebecca Waters, a psychiatrist at UCSF across the bay from you. Okay. And it's about the DSM and the subtitle is The Exportation of the Western Psyche. And it's very clear that, again, the DSM is primarily produced by researchers in North America and Europe. And so much of the manifestation of psychiatric illness com- is contextual, is cultural. And so examples are, you know, when people feel grief in China, an example they provided was it, that manifests physically as back pain often, which is very different, you know, culturally informed. Anorexia was not categorized condition in China, for example, but you know, with the exportation of the DSM plus cultural context and contagion effects, which we know exist in psychiatric illness with communities of, you know, people with anorexia or suicide contagion, these other issues, those are exported. So the DSM actually helped kind of bring our physical manifestations of psychiatric illness to other regions. Hmm. I guess I'll just convey the tremendous excitement we all feel at being part of this incredible opportunity that Psychedelics make us question so many of our fundamental assumptions about the nature of reality and our experience of it and the connections between consciousness and the brain and the mind. And for so many of us, it's just been you know, an impossible dream to think that we would actually be able to be doing real research and making discoveries in this area. And it's just thrilling to be a part of it and, and a real honor to, to be able to be at a place like the, the, the Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics and be able to do this work and, and also the together with our our education and training programs to kind of share it with the world. Yeah, we're very excited about it and look forward to seeing what what other progress your lab brings to the field. So Dr. Silver, with that, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. And more importantly, the, the work you've done over the past several decades to, to help us better understand how the how the vision system works and now how psychedelics could, could play a meaningful role in healthcare. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun. And I really admire the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. And with that, I'm Shiv Guglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.